Well, as we continue to worship, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We will be focusing in on verses 6 through 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have been working through this account of Jonah's life uh, as he has been on a journey with God. And we'll see as uh, we unpack and unfold uh, this passage that not only was God working in Jonah's life, but he was also working in the king of Nineveh's life to bring him also to the place where Jonah was a few weeks ago as we saw his repentance and his faith in God. And so as we come to the Lord now with uh, a desire to hear from Him, to embrace His Word and His will for our lives, let us go to Him one more time in a word of prayer as we declare our dependency on Him in all things, especially as we desire for Him to transform our hearts this morning. Let us pray together. Father, what a magnificent thing it is for us to be able to come and to sing Even as we think of the year to come, as we think of 2022, Lord, we trust that your mercies are as new this morning and for this year as they have been every morning and every year. Father, as we think about the year ahead, may we find ourselves certainly in circumstances where we are called to exercise our faith and our trust in you. So we think about the people that we, were in, we will interact with throughout this year. Father, may you use us as instruments of your grace. Many of us probably will not rub shoulders with kings or people in high positions, and yet you've called each one of us to the places in which we work and we play and we study in order that we might be an instrument of your mercy and grace to the nations, to all those who have yet to come to your Son as Lord and Savior. And so, Father, would you do a magnificent work in us this year, even as we seek to be those who proclaim your mercies to those around us. As we think of the king of Nineveh this morning, as we think about the platform and position that he had In this text, in order to do just that, Father, we pray even for our nation. Father, we pray that there might be a sense of humility among our leaders. That there might be a sense of dependence upon the God who created all things and who directs all things in order that you might receive the glory that is due your name. Father, may we as a nation come before you, humble ourselves turn our face to You, seek You and pray in order that You might respond to us. Father, what a magnificent thing it is for us to think about this reality that our God condescends, that He comes down, even in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, it's because of His work on the cross and even in the resurrection that we can approach Your throne with boldness this morning. And so would you be with us now as we seek to unpack and understand your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever stopped to really think just how powerful the word of the Lord is? Last time we were together, we talked from Jonah 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, that the means of salvation is God's word proclaimed and God's word believed. That each one of these works in tandem to bring about God's blessing upon those who deserve God's judgments. That as the reality of God is declared, and as the people of God embrace that reality, we see the fruit of faith produced in actions that demonstrate the power and mercy and salvation of God to us through Jesus Christ. But have you ever wondered just how far God's Word can go? It's evident this morning that God's Word has penetrated our hearts, but do we truly believe that God's Word is powerful enough even to penetrate the most obstinate of hearts? Do we truly believe this morning that God is able to save to the uttermost? Do we truly believe that God is able to save even the most unlikely of men? Do we really believe this morning that God is absolutely able even to save someone like the king of Nineveh? What we find actually, is that that is exactly the kind of God that we serve. That God is able to save kings. That God is able to reveal Himself to presidents and even to dictators and to those who are in high places. God is able to reach even the most unlikely and obstinate of hearts. What we find in Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, is God's mercy to the king of Nineveh. Maybe the most unlikely of all within Jonah's day to turn from his sin and turn to God, at least by worldly standards. But even as we found out last week, God does not operate on the basis of worldly standards. God is able to save. Through the power of His Word, even the most unlikely of sinners. And that is what we see in our text this morning in Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. I trust that you have turned there with me this morning. And let us begin reading God's holy, infallible, and inspired Word at the beginning of verse 6. Jonah chapter 3, verse 6 says this, The Word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that, it is, that is in his hands. Who knows? May, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
What I want us to see here this morning in Jonah chapter 3, verse 6 through 9, is God's mercy to the king of Nineveh, as well as God's mercy through the king of Nineveh. If you're following along in your bulletin insert, that's your first fill-in for this morning. We, we will see in our text God's mercy to, God's mercy to the king. Notice it with me in Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. It says this, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. What we learn here at the beginning of verse 6 is that the, the word of the Lord, which was spreading throughout the people of Nineveh, has finally reached the king of Nineveh. Now, this is significant for a few reasons. First, because the word has spread at such a significant rate that the king of Nineveh has already received this word from the prophet from Amittai. And it would seem that it didn't even take the three days which Jonah expected that it would to declare this message of God's judgment to all the people of Nineveh. The king has heard this word. But it's also significant because it would seem that the king in Assyria at this time had been going through his own kind of Jonah journey. And that this, the word from Jonah, might just be the final straw that brings the king to his knees to receive God's word. Now that is not to say that God's word is not powerful in and of itself to save. It is. But what we see in history is that God has been preparing this king much like he prepared Jonah to receive this message from the, from the Lord. Let's take a moment this morning and have a bit of a history lesson. How many of you guys enjoyed history in school? One of my least favorite subjects, I have to confess, but this morning we are going to go back into the pages of history and seek to understand what exactly is going on in Assyria and with this king. Now from our best assessment... The king of Nineveh and the wider Assyria at this time when Jonah prophesied was Asher Dan III. He reigned in Assyria from the year 773 to 755 BC. Now what we know from 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25 is that Jonah prophesied in Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam the second, who reigned in Israel from 786 to 746 B.C., and therefore was a contemporary of Asherdan III. Now, we can't say with absolute certainty that this is the case, because the king is not identified in Jonah's account. But we can be pretty confident that Asherdan III is the king whom Jonah comes with the message of repentance and judgment. 
Now, we don't have much data concerning this period of Assyrian history, but one thing we do know is that there were several very significant events to take place during the reign of King Asher Dan III. First, the Assyrian monarchy was declining in power and was constantly being threatened by enemies from within as well as from without. Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia, has this to say concerning this time during Assyrian history. It says this, During this period, the Neo-Assyrian Empire experienced a period of decline. In particular, the power of the king himself was being threatened due to the emergence of extraordinarily powerful officials, whom, while they accepted the authority of the Assyrian monarch in practice, acted with supreme authority themselves and began to issue their own inscriptions similar to those of the kings. At the same time, the enemies of Assyria grew stronger and more serious. This period of Assyrian decline, for instance, coincided with the peak of the northern kingdom of Urartu. It was customary for an Assyrian king to campaign every year, but Ashurdan stayed in Assyria for, the four, for four years of his entire reign, perhaps a sign of domestic instability. But not only was the Assyrian monarchy declining in power, the king was also dealing with two very significant plagues and civilian revolts as a response. Wikipedia goes on to say this, after 765 BC, the records suggest a very unstable time for Assyria. Plague is reported in both 765 and 759 B.C. and recorded as a revolt in the Assyrian heartland in 763, a revolt in Arapha in 761, and a revolt in Guazana in 759 until peace is at last restored in 758 B.C. And so not only was the power and clout of the king declining, they were also enduring these plagues and civilian revolts. But finally, and probably most significantly, Nineveh in the year 763 BC experienced a full solar eclipse. Again, Wikipedia goes on to say, Perhaps the many revolts were in response to the plague epidemic, as well as Bur Sagali solar eclipse on 15 June 763 BC. Solar eclipse, especially full eclipses that were visible to everyone in the empire, as was the case for this eclipse, were always interpreted as bad omens. And as such, the epidemic. And the eclipse may have been interpreted as the gods withdrawing their divine support from Asher Dan's rule. Now, that we know all this of Assyrian history, why are these events during King Asher Dan III's reign so significant and helps us understand what is going on in this text? It's because each event even alone, 
would have been seen in the eyes of the king of Nineveh as signs of disfavor upon his reign. One commentary on this passage said this, that from Assyrian omen text, we know of four circumstances that could move a people and its king to fasting and mourning. Invasion by an enemy, a total solar eclipse, famine or a major outbreak of disease, and a major flood. Now one of these events could have led to a deposing of King Asherdan III from his throne, let alone three of these events. It would seem that the Lord of the universe, who controls all things sovereignly and providentially, brought three out of four of these foreboding events into the king's life to bring him to an end of himself. Each of these events would have caused the king to be in internal turmoil concerning the future of his kingdom. Each of these events would have been softening the king of Nineveh's heart in order that he might receive the word from Jonah. God was breaking him down in order that he might build him up. Again, it would seem that much like in the life of Jonah, in the life of the king of Nineveh, the Lord in his extravagant mercy is directing all the affairs of his life in order to make him a vessel fit to dispense his mercy and grace to those around him. It is true what the scriptures declare in Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and that He turns it wherever He will. And turn the king's heart, the Lord did indeed. What we find in our text and in history is that God is working both externally and internally on the king of Nineveh to bring him to repentance. Now notice how Jonah describes the repentance of the king. In Jonah chapter 3 verse 6. It says this, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now imagine, if you will, this word of the Lord being the final straw for the king of Nineveh. He has gotten bad news after bad news. His kingdom is being threatened, especially by superior forces up north. His citizens are sick and in an upheaval. A total solar eclipse has been seen by the entire nation, and he receives this word from the Lord in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Let's review it from last week. It says this, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now it is often said that the Lord, that the Lord cannot use a man or woman greatly until He has broken him completely. Some might question the validity of such a statement, but we don't have to go very far 
to confirm it. Remember Jonah's journey. Remember the storm and the boat and the whale. It wasn't until Jonah hit the very bottom that he cried out to the Lord for mercy. And it seems that that is the case for the king of Nineveh. What we have in Jonah chapter 3 verse 6 is an absolutely broken king. The language here in Jonah chapter 3 verse 6 is intended to show the extensive nature of the king's repentance. I wonder if as we read through that verse, you noticed the sentence construction. It acts as steps to indicate how the king's repentance progresses. Look at it again in Jonah chapter 3 verse 6. And I've also put it in your bulletin insert so you can see the progression more clearly. But this is what it says in Jonah chapter 3 verse 6. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. And he sat in ashes. Now notice how each step mimics the one that coordinates with it. The first two are a divesting of his official position as king. Both his throne and his robe would have stood to represent his right to rule. Much like we see God's throne and God's robe represent his royal and universal right to rule in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. Remember Isaiah 6 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The king of Nineveh stands from his throne, and he removes his robe. This is a sign of surrender. The king of Nineveh is giving himself over to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Essentially, the king is saying, I am not in control, which has been evidenced by his circumstance. And therefore, he is giving himself over to God's rightful rule over the nations. The king may not be fully aware of it, but he is asserting the reality of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 and verse 17, where it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before him, they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The king of Nineveh is beginning to understand this reality that it is the king of Jonah, the king of the prophets of Israel, who is the king of the universe and of the nations. But not only does he stand from his throne and remove his robe, but he clothes himself in sackcloth and sits in ash. One commentary on this passage, and you can find it again on the bulletin insert, says this, the remainder of verse 6 
describing the exciting response by this ruler, he rose from his throne, the seat of his royal power, power, and humbled himself with the common people. He laid aside his robe, which was large and beautifully embroidered, and in its place the king put on sackcloth as a sign of mourning, and he sat in ashes, a sign of deep humiliation. He who was the highest in the empire took the lowest position of abasement. All of this is intended to show that the king has given himself fully over to the sovereign hand of a greater king. That is the king of the nations. That is the God of the prophet of Jonah, of the prophet Jonah. That is the Lord of all the universe. And his repentance, much like we saw last week, issues forth in an action. His repentance bears fruit. And that fruit is a royal decree into all the land of Nineveh. You see, beloved, the repentance of the king is no small matter. Because the repentance of the king has such wide-reaching effects. Not only do we see God's mercy to the king in this passage, but we also see God's mercy through the king. If you're following along in the bulletin insert, that's your second fill-in for this morning. We see God's mercy to the king in his repentance. And we also see God's mercy through the king in this royal decree. Notice it in Jonah chapter 3, verse 7, all the way down to verse 10. It says this, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, nor herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of, his, of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Now we're going to spend a whole week on verse 10. But what I wanted to do is include it this morning so that we can see God's response to the king's repentance and the effect that it had on the nation. God decided to turn from the disaster which He had planned for the people of Nineveh and spared them from their fate. Now let's look at the official decree itself. Notice it, verse 7. The king makes official a national repentance. He says, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that it is that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, many of you may be asking at this point, why in the world does the king of Nineveh extend this national repentance even to the beasts of the land? There might be two reasons for that. The first is, I think, because it is showing the extensive nature, the thorough nature of the king's repentance. Not only does this decree cover men and women, but it also covers beasts of the field. Now, Douglas Stewart, again, helps us out here again in his commentary where he says this, that wise man, that is another commentator, points out that the solar eclipse omen text mentioned not only the king, but animals and the land as a whole and their specifications of those on whom the divine wrath indicated in the eclipse might, that the eclipse might fall. This, of course, comports remarkably with the decree issued by the king. You see, the king's repentance may be somewhat ignorant. That is to say that he feels the need to extend it even to the beast of the field. But it is certainly genuine. The king and his nobles have had a change of hearts. Because the word of Jonah has come to them, the king recognizes that his circumstances are a result of the sovereign work of the king of Israel. Much like we saw in Jonah chapter 1 with the sailors in the boat. And so the king and his nobles turn to the Lord in repentance. And the king desires for all in the land to know it. The decree is the fruit of the king's repentance. And it's an opportunity for him to declare the mercy of God to the whole of his kingdom. Even though he may not even know it. Notice what verse 9 says in our text. The king issues the decree and he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What we learn from verse 9 is that the king is certainly ignorant of the God of Israel's ways. And he shows it here. But what he and the whole of Nineveh is about to learn is this. Yes, that is exactly like the God who is calling them to repentance. What we know, the king may not know. Jonah knew what the king did not know. What we know and what Jonah knew is that God is merciful. That he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The truth that the king and the people of Nineveh are going to come to know is a truth that is declared throughout the whole of Scripture. It is the truth that God responds 
God responds to the repentance of the brokenhearted and the contrite in spirit. We read it all over the place in Scripture, but there are two passages that I think are pertinent and bring this reality out in high relief. Notice Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40, which again you can find on the insert in your bulletin. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40 says this, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, which is a text that is probably more familiar to some of us, is this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And there are many other passages like this. And so then what does this tell us about our God? It tells us that God requires all men to humble themselves and repent. That is to look away from themselves and to look towards God in order that He might bless them and those around them. The covenant blessings that God promises to His people and all those who trust in Him are predicated on us recognizing that we have nothing to offer God and that He alone is the author and giver of life and blessing. And so God will often use judgment on sin to provoke repentance. That is what we see in our passage from this morning. It's what we have seen in the testimony of Jonah. Even as he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, God was using his circumstance to bring him to an end of himself and to cry out to the Lord for mercy. And it's what we find here in the king of Nineveh and its people. I love what John Calvin says about Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40 through 42. I've included it in your insert bulletin so that you can follow along and maybe take it home with you this morning and reflect on it a bit. But notice what he says about this text in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40. He says, although Moses has been discoursing on very severe and cruel punishment, still he declares that even in the midst of this awful severity, God is to be appeased if only the people should repent. Notwithstanding that they may have stripped themselves of all hope of pardon by their long-continued sins. For he does not address sinners in general, 
But those who by their obstinacy and brutal impetuosity, look that word up later, have come nearer and nearer to the vengeance of God. And even these he encourages to a good hope. If only they be converted from their hearts. Let us be assured then that God's mercy is offered to the worst of men who have been plunged by their guilt into the depths of despair as though it reaches even to hell itself. Whence too it follows that all punishments are like spurs to rouse the inert and hesitating to repentance, whilst the sore plagues are intended to break their hard hearts. What an excellent comment. God requires all men to repent. God desires for men and women to see the error of their ways and to turn from themselves and turn to Him. God's mercy is extended even to the worst among us. When we own the wickedness of our sins and turn to God for forgiveness in life. God desires for men and women always to throw themselves upon the mercy of God and God alone. And when they do, He has promised to meet us in our repentance. This was true of Jonah. It was also true of the Ninevites. And it is still true to you and to me. What we learn from this passage, brothers and sisters, is that God responds to the brokenhearted. What we learn from this passage, beloved, is that God responds to the contrite in spirit. What we learn is that God responds to those who humble themselves, confess their absolute deficiency, and cry out to Him for deliverance. Psalm 34 verse 18 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Beloved, I don't know about you, but for me, that is great news. I am so thankful that the process through which I receive God's blessing is not my works, nor my merits, it's not me trying to earn the favor of God, but it's me coming to God in humble repentance and faith in His promises. That is how we receive that which God declares in His Word. It's through the proclamation of the Word. It's through belief in who God is and what He has done. And it is repenting of our own ways our own deserts, and are throwing ourselves upon God and His blessing in order that He might receive all of the glory. Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the message that we proclaim. It's a message of faith and salvation outside of ourselves. 
And as we come to the cross, even as we come to the table this morning, God is calling each one of us to humble ourselves, to understand that we do not deserve the blessing which is presented to us this morning. That each one of us deserve the wrath and judgment which the cross points to. But that Jesus Christ Himself took our judgment. That He took our wrath in order that we might be pleasing to the Lord. And God extends that mercy to you and me. And He even extended it to the King of Nineveh. The decree which the King pronounces is an opportunity for God to have a stage on the world. It's an opportunity for all of Nineveh and the surrounding provinces to understand that when God relents, it is God who brings salvation to the people of Nineveh. And it is God who brings salvation to us. And so this morning as we come to the table, this morning as we think about the elements and what they represent, the body and blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, may we come as those who are fully and entirely depending on Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. And may we, much like the king and much like the people of Nineveh, take this message of salvation to all who will hear and believe the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, what a magnificent mercy we see in our text this morning. Father, that you brought repentance to the king of Nineveh. Father, even as we think about the circumstances in his life, we trust and believe that each one was sovereignly directed by your hand in order to bring him to an end of himself. And Father, each one of us, I'm sure, are going through our own set of circumstances. And although they may not be because of judgment upon sin, for that judgment has been dealt entirely at the cross of Jesus, they are intended to draw us even more into fellowship with who you are. They are intended to help us understand the limitations which each one of us face. They are intended to help us to cast ourselves upon your mercy and grace alone. And so, Father, would you use all that you sovereignly direct in our lives to bring us to that point in order that we might humble ourselves and cry out for your mercy and grace. We're so thankful for it this morning, and we pray this in your name.